Hello and welcome to another episode of the TLDR UK podcast where I, Zach Michaelis, will be joined by Roy Taylor, I was going to Roy Stewart, by <laughs> a big habit. Yeah, <laughs> um, I am joined today by Rory Taylor, Hello. Uh, TLDR Global's lead writer. I think that's your sort of like de facto yeah. title now. Um, and we are going to be talking about, well, we're going to be talking mainly about the UK and we're going to be doing a sort of like year in review uh, of 2023 because obviously we're recording this on Monday and next Monday will be Christmas and the Monday after that is the 1st of January. So we thought it would be a good time to do our sort of final 2023 podcast, yeah. do a whole year in review thing. Um, but before we get into it, I should say that if you are surprised to see this on the TLDR UK main channel, um, that is because we have just started migrating over our podcast, which used to be on TLDR podcast, unsurprisingly, over to the main channels because YouTube has just set up a sort of podcast feed for the main channels. But if you are pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised um, for this video's appearance, that, that should explain it. Um, uh, we're going to have one of these on UK every Tuesday and another podcast over on TLDR Global every Thursday. So I think that is all of the admin sorted. Um, before we get into the sort of 2023 year in review, uh, as is custom on this podcast, we are going to start with our underreported stories. I think obviously I have to ask you to do underreported story well, now. I'm so used to having multiple people to yeah, ask. Yeah, it's a very but... empty sofa today, but... Um... Yeah, so my underreported story, it's kind of frustrating because uh, toward, over the weekend, I noted down what I wanted my underreported story to be. And now I think it's definitely not underreported. I did the same thing. Was oh. it shipping? Yes. Oh, it was so boring. Yeah, it was my underreported. <laughs> like you, I've yeah. changed it because it's no longer underreported. Okay, well that, Wait, to flesh that out a little bit. I yeah. think we were both going to talk. Well, I haven't actually changed mine. I'm sticking with it. Oh, mine. you are so sticking I, with it? powering through, so that, oh. that works. Okay, you explain. Go okay. on. Um, effectively... Um, the, there's been a big escalation over the last few weeks and months since the conflict in Gaza broke out in the Red Sea. Very, very important shipping lane. It's got the Suez Canal at one end and the Gulf of Aden at the other end. Um, very important for oil routes and just general container traffic from Asia to Europe. And there's uh, another strait, the southernmost point called yes. the Bab al-Mandab, which, which is, is also very, very narrow. Narrow choke point. Yeah. Um, the Houthis in, in Yemen, um, who uh, kind of in what they would call retribution against Israel have been attacking container ships passing through that strait. Um, it's, it's pretty regular now. You get almost every day you hear something, something's happened. Um, it's mostly missile or drone attacks. There was a big high, quite a high profile hijacking, but yeah, mostly missile and drone attacks so far. No ships have been sunk. And I don't think anyone's been killed or injured, but that, you know, to, to actually have an impact on global shipping, that doesn't need to happen. Just the threat of, the increased danger that is posed by these attacks has been enough to um, prompt big shipping companies like Maersk and other ones. I, I don't know the names of the other no, big shipping they're, companies, they're to be fair. All long. Um, and also BP just today, the oil company, have said they're not going to transit through that through that um, through the Red Sea now. Um, so it's basically kind of ruled out the Red Sea as a tran as a kind of uh, pathway for for container traffic and it means if they don't do that they have to go all around all the way around the um kind of southern coast of africa which is a massive journey um it has just, something like three thousand nautical yeah, miles to the journey huge. yeah it's amazing if you look at a map i mean mm. i should say at this point we do have a video coming out on this on yes. tldr global tomorrow um but and also whenever you do your unreported stories we end up in this slightly embarrassing circle chat like, where i go yeah. like that is such a good unreported <laughs> yeah. story but it really is a very good unreported <laughs> yeah. story um 
I was, I think there are a couple of really interesting, oh, sorry, were you finished? Or? Um, well, the only other thing I was going to say is just that the, the potential for massive disruption to the global trade system is, is really big because if you just remember when that one ship got stuck in the Suez Canal and it backed everything up, that, that had a big impact. And this is effectively saying that the major shipping companies aren't going to use that route at all. And at some point, consumers and, and businesses will feel that the, the results of this um, yeah. filter through. Yeah, no, especially if it continues. I mean, mm. then you have like a sort of like sustained impact, essentially on inflation, because yeah. so many goods that we buy in our day-to-day -day life come via that passage. I mean, it's the main, like most of the trade between East Asia and Europe yeah. goes via the Red Sea and via the Suez Canal. And it's also a very important trade route for oil exports that are most exported from like Persian Gulf states. So they sort of go round the Arabian Peninsula up through the Red Sea and then into Europe. But, you know, like places like Qatar and um, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, who are all exporting oil to Europe, they, most of it goes through there. Um, and so, yeah, if you have sustained disruption to that trade route, you could end up with a really significant uptick in prices. Mm. Um, I think that one of the things I think is really interesting about this, and I think, there's, I mean, I'm trying to find something new to take because it's been so thoroughly covered by the media. But I think one of the other things that's really interesting is that there are echoes of, the, what's called the tanker war in the 80s, which was between Iraq and Iran. And it's a really, really fascinating episode because basically the Iranians are using oil revenues shipped out of the Persian Gulf to fund the their side of the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and the Iraqis realize this and go, oh, why don't we just blow up all of these um, Iranian exporting, like these ships ex exporting Iranian oil. And one of the things that's really interesting about the tanker wars is quite how, like, ineffective the Iraqis generally were in blowing up Iranian tankers because the really thick crude oil doesn't ignite. Right. So even if you hit it head on, in many cases it wouldn't ignite. And most of the ships had sort of like, uh, basically they could either flood the like affected cabins with fumes that didn't, that don't alight. Yeah. Um, and it, there was some studies done afterwards that found that actually it was more, the, the missiles, there were French made missiles that the Iraqis were using were more expensive to fire than the damage they actually did. Really? Yeah. To the tank, to the tankers. Um, and I think this is what's interesting about this one is that that cost has been dramatically shrunk down by the, by, by drones. Mm. So one of the things that deterred the Iraqis from attacking too many Iranian tankers was that they just didn't have the money to buy enough French made missiles yeah. to, to do it. Um, but this is yet another example of how just drones have changed, not just like warfare, but like geopolitics. Yeah. Um, and the fact that the Houthis can now have a go at a massive tanker for, you know, what is frankly like a couple of thousand dollars yeah. a pop um, is, is one of the interesting change, like the interesting differences compared to the, the tanker war in the eighties. Um, so I think that's a great underreported story is basically what I'm getting at here. Uh, my unreported story, again, I was going to do the shipping one, but you're right, it has been thoroughly reported. But I, I think my unreported story is actually just more about Ukraine. Um, and as clearly our fans will know, we've, if they exist, we have done, we used to do a load of Ukraine content yeah. on EU. And our Ukraine content today just doesn't really get much attention. And the media in general has sort of slightly given up on Ukraine. Um, but Ukraine has had a really bad couple of weeks, not necessarily on the battlefield, but in the fact that Hungary has successfully held up aid to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I think that's true to say yeah. at the moment. And while they're beginning negotiations about Ukraine's EU accession, the Orban is still signaling quite strongly that he's not going to let um, Ukraine join the bloc uh, eventually. Um, and then you have in the US Republicans blocking aid to Ukraine. And there's a really good podcast, by the way, 
it's called These Times um, with Helen Thompson and Tom McTague. And last week they had uh, the, def- the Economist defense editor, Shashank Joshi, who's also really, really good, on to talk about Ukraine. And he just fleshes out how, like, as Ukraine becomes like an attritional, sort of long attritional war, Russia does have the advantages. It has more money, for starters, especially mm-hmm. if aid gets, like, caught up. It has more man, man manpower, yeah, basically. Yeah. It just has more men. Um, and I think perhaps most pertinently, it just has a steadier supply of, of like artillery shells. And that's in part because the Europeans just haven't lived up to their promises when it comes to artillery shells and how much they'd be able to provide to Ukraine. Uh, I think that basically things are getting really, really bad for Ukraine. And there are two things that make this underreported and I think sort of surprised me. I mean, one is like quite how quickly it's got bad. And you know, it really has been the last like couple of months or so. But two is just like h- how little attention, like how passive this has yeah. been. Like it's been a series of small sort of half decisions or like failures to do things. And all of a sudden Ukraine is in a very, very different position. And I don't think that we're really thinking through the strategic consequences of like letting Russia like quote win mm. in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think it's a partisan comment to say that like, I think it's, in, it's entirely in the West interest to basically to win in Ukraine. Um, and I think that we're sort of well, sort of falling towards, uh, if not a Russian victory, then at least an uncomfortable stalemate yeah. without really thinking through the sort of second order strategic consequences of that, of that outcome. So that's my one. I think that basically Ukraine isn't getting enough attention. I understand why that is, but I also think that's probably something we should probably think a bit more about in the West. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the UK the stuff. Main event. Yeah, that was it was very international focused. This yeah. quite feels quite sort of myopic to just yeah. narrow down to UK all of a sudden. So we're going to do a 2023 year in view. Um, and we were thinking about how to like structure this. And originally we we're going to do like months or maybe sort of quarters. You know, it'd be very sort of adult of us. Um, but I think instead we have decided to do it by party. Um, and so we're going to look at specifically the, uh, the SNP. We're going to look at reform, or very, very briefly, I think, the Lib Dems, Tories, and Labour. Yeah. Okay, like, which one do you want to start with? Do you want to start big and go small or start small? Um, I think, I mean, it feels right to start with the Tories as they're in government. I think, I think it's fair to start with the Tories. I think the main thing that I want to ask then is, like, what do you think has actually changed for the Tories compared to the end of 2022? Because, to my mind, what's most astonishing about this is how, is how little has changed. Yeah. Um, I feel like hardly anything has changed. I mean, lots lots of small things have changed. You know, they've had, I think they're on their third uh, party chairman. They've had a couple of reshuffles. They've reworked their, their kind of um, rhetoric and all sorts of things. There's lots of changes, but the fundamentals are, are the same. Um, they're still 20 or so points behind in the polls. And all these little changes don't seem to have had any impact on that. Um, obviously, there have been... Uh, you know, we started the year with Rishi Sunak's five pledges. Yeah. I think where we're at now is only one of them has been met, the inflation one. Um, I think there are changes in the kind of uh, political atmosphere as well. We started the year with, I mean, strikes were a huge story over last winter, kind of at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of this year as well. And they seem to have fallen out of the news cycle now. A lot That's of them true. have been solved, but a lot of them are still going on. We've got, I think, junior doctors are striking in January or possibly the end of this month. Um, so those challenges are still there. Um, but yeah, fundamentally, it feels like we're we're more entrenched in the same kind of political 
dynamic that we were at the start of the year in that the Tories are still very far behind and the things they're trying to do to change that haven't worked and still aren't working if the polls are to be believed. Yeah, so to my mind, I think there were sort of two things that Sunak wanted to change when he came into, into office. I think the first was he did post-trust want to set a new policy direction. Uh, and the other thing he wants to change is he would basically improve internal party management. And I think we can say on the internal party management thing that that's just a, it's a failure. It's mm. a, a complete failure. Um, and I think that's fundamentally just because the Tories are stuck in this very uncomfortable sort of feedback loop where bad polling encourages disunity. I've talked about this before, and I really do think this is this sort of does explain, yeah. it has real explanatory power, this sort of analysis, but that's oh, quite arrogant, I didn't mean like that. But as in like, I do think they're stuck in a doom loop where the bad polling just feeds disunity, which makes the polling worse, which feeds disunity. I think there's probably something there to be said about like the impact of social media and the independence it gives MPs. But I do think the fundamentals are just that the bad polling and the fact that everyone is sort of like, has their eyes on the upcoming leadership yeah. election, post-election. Um, is just what explains that mostly. And then I think that the more interesting thing is about the sort of like policy reorientation. And obviously Truss's whole thing was about, well, she pitched it as like going for growth, but it was that sort of like very old school, like right-wing economics, basically, yeah. you know, like you cut taxes, um, you like get rid of all the red tape and you sort of go for unfettered, I don't know, like American or Singapore style yeah. growth. Um, and I think when Sunak came in, his new policy orientation was supposed to just be more like pragmatic and more managerial it was more sort of like stewardship of the economy mm. like steadying the ship very david cameron george osborne sort of thing um you know no unfunded tax cuts that sort of thing but then i think he sort of realized that, that just wasn't like electorally sufficient and then he's done a couple of weird pivots since then yeah. i mean we saw the anti-net zero stuff which was after the uxbridge by-election because they sort of over-inferred from that result where basically the Tories' opposition to ULEZ apparently won them the by-election that they need to start opposing green policies more generally. And then you also had the like anti-immigration pivot that I think we've continued to see. So I guess what my question is, like, what do you think motivated these policy-like pivots and why do you think they've been so unsuccessful? I think it's just they, like you did uh, use the ULES example with the Uxbridge by-election, there's just these moments where something happens and they seize that and think, this is the thing that's going to save us, this is the thing that's going to save us this time. And it just doesn't, you know, that's not the case. Because I think going into the next general election, it's not those individual things that people are thinking of. It's just the broader kind of economic environment, but also the fact that they've been in power for 13 years and there's there's really little you can do to convince voters that, that you're not just going to kind of continue those 13 years. Yeah. And he did that at the uh, Conservative conference in October. His whole speech was about pitching himself as the change candidate and Labour as part of the the last 20 or 30 years of kind of um, <laughs> political consensus. And that kind of lasted for a little while. And he doesn't seem to be doing that anymore. That kind of died when he brought David Cameron back, I think. Um, so... I think I think it's just these they swing between these attempts of thinking that this this thing can can really help them and turn things around but realize it's not doing that and then move to something else. And migration has been one that's been kind of like an ongoing theme. Um and it's I think it's a uh, you know they're kind of doomed to fail on this one because the conservatives seem to think that by raising the profile of migration as an issue going into the next election that they can beat labor on that whereas they're just raising the raising the salience of an issue that they consistently are kind of failing on by yeah. their own metrics. So I think what's interesting about both migration and net zero 
is if you look across the pond, if you look to Europe, mm. they're both very effective talking points for like, well, let's like say socially right-wing parties. Yeah. Um, but I think, the, the, and I, I guess that Sunak and his administration have, have looked at those experiences mm. and gone like, oh, maybe we can politically benefit in the same way as like Gert Wilders yeah. uh, in the Netherlands or like basically any right-wing party in Europe at the moment, which is they've all taken a stronger stance on immigration. Um, but I think that the mistake, the category mistake he's making there is that because these are basically very difficult issues to solve, they're very effective when you're in opposition. Yeah. They're not effective when you're in government. Yeah. Like none of, you know, Maloney is a great example. It's very effective campaigning on anti-immigration issues when she was in opposition. But her polling, and especially polling on specifically the issue of immigration, has declined quite steeply since she came into office yeah. because it was effective because she said, oh, no one's getting a handle on this. But it turns out no one's getting a handle on it because it's difficult to get a handle on. Yeah. So when she came into power, she's also struggled. She's backtracked on some of her more radical pledges like, uh, naval blockade and mm. the um, basically around the coast of Italy, um, and you know Italy is still having a problem with what's described as irregular migration there. Um, and I think something also is true of net zero is that it's something you can campaign on as like you can basically blame a lot of inflationary issues on net zero policies on sort of like the metropolitan liberal elite and their sort of like wishy washy green yeah. fantasies. Um, but it's not a good. It's, it's, it just doesn't really work when you're in power because it's like, well, yeah, yeah can you change something about it? And then you assume that then the, the public are thinking, okay, does this mean I'm going to, basically my living standard is going to improve? And when they don't do so noticeably, and there's, there's clearly no direct link between your living standards and this like green policies, then it doesn't have any sort of like real political capital to it. Mm. Um, but yeah, anyway, I think that's, I think the Tories, we, we can move on from them because I think yeah. we've gone through this so many times on this podcast and they're basically not doing very well. Yeah. Um, should we do Labour? Yeah, I think so. So I have basically two questions for you on Labour um, and you can take them in which any order you okay. want. They're pretty big. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the first one is, do you think Labour have been too right wing? And the second one is, do you think that they've, basically this is, this is a criticism, do you think they've shown enough imagination? Um, that are they too boring? So those are my two questions: Is do you think Labour yeah. too? Because these are two accusations that are often levelled at them from like the left, the sort of like yeah. the, the old the old brand of Labour. Um, and what a lot of people are like you know our generation is generally a bit more left leaning. A lot of like people who are into politics our age, they often say similar things. You know, like, Labour have gone too far right. I guess those are the questions then. Do you think they've gone too far right and do you think they're too boring? Um, we need a big like personal opinion klaxon yeah. on the screen, but my answer to the, both of those would be yes. Okay. Um, on the, uh, I guess I'll start with the, the, the right wing thing. So I think that has been the kind of continued trend through this year. You know, they've continued to do very well in the polls. Um, but when it comes to the like policy issues and the stances that Keir Starmer has taken, you know, the year has definitely seen him continue that project of like distancing himself from the Corbyn years. He's gone further than he had in the first two years or so as leader. Um, and also um, doing what he, I think he described it as, you know, turning Labour into a party of governance. Um, and this break with the Corbyn years kind of, it didn't start with his leadership election because during his leadership uh, campaign, I should say in 2020, he, he kind of championed the time he spent with Jeremy Corbyn and talked about the, the moral case for socialism and all these kind of things that you would never hear from him these days. Yeah, he campaigned so he for is, a second referendum. Exactly. He, he's so different from the man he was or the man that kind of he presented himself as, uh, you know, just three years ago or something. Um, but I think we're getting to the point now where we're seeing what a Starmer, a Labour government run by Starmer will actually look like in office. And it's very different to what he set out three years ago. Um, 
I think that doesn't actually answer your question about being too right-wing at all, but I'll try and do that now. Um, well, well, I think what you, sorry, I was going to say, you, what you've suggested is, you haven't said anything about the sort of the, how electorally optimal it is. Yeah. But I'm, you've at least mentioned that there's a degree of dishonesty. I don't think that's, don't think yes. that's unfair to say yeah, I, in that I he think, shifted from 2020. Yeah, because there's, I don't want to focus too much on discussions you see on Twitter, but there's something <laughs> that sums it up quite well. You do see a lot of talk about people who are dissatisfied with Starmer's stance on things saying well look maybe when he gets maybe he's just saying this so he can get into office and when he gets into office he'll he'll do lots of radical left-wing things but that that viewpoint is relying on the 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 idea that he's just lying at the moment um which is not a great like defense of a politician really that they're going to do great things but they're just kind of saying other things to the electorate now to get in um because you know they'd say it was bad when boris johnson did it so you know, it should be bad when any politician yeah, I, does but it. I guess but what you, in, in, in their defence, in the Twitter artist's defence, mm. like, they're assuming that he's being, like, a little bit dishonest because he has been dishonest in the past. Yeah. You know, like, I guess the question is, like, which version of Keir Starmer to believe, like, the 2020 version or the 2022 one? Like, where are his political instincts? Yeah, I think they're definitely in the, I think it's the 2022, 2023 Keir Starmer is the kind of real, the real, the Keir, real Starmer. Keir Starmer. With the real Keir Starmer, please <laughs> yeah. get elected. Um, I mean, the, I think one of the interesting things this year has been his criticisms of the government have been, or Labour's criticisms of the government have been focused a lot on the competent or the incompetency of the government rather than moral or like political um, opposition to certain policies, um, whether that's stuff on like benefits or migration or yeah i think the um, migration was really interesting things, because yeah. the fact that they haven't criticized like the rwanda policy on ethical grounds yeah but rather just on like pragmatic grounds on like it doesn't work yeah. sort of thing and also on fiscal grounds you know talk about how much of a waste of money it is yeah and i i think that i can see why they do that because that is a very easy case to make um when you can say look the government said they'd get migration down to this level but it's rocketed to 700 and something thousand um that is an easy case to make um but when they then start to like avoid questions about what they would actually do on it uh, if they come to power, that is, I think that's still there, the ground that they're on, kind of the most unstable ground that they're on. And they're going to have to work out those answers as we get close to the election, which could be just a few months away. Yeah, I think that's the, the interesting use that turn of phrase. It's an easy case to make. And I think that is the one thing that whether, whatever version of Keir Starmer you think is the real Keir Starmer, mm. that's the criticism of him that I think is, is most legitimate. It's that he only makes the easy arguments and he's not confident to, to basically try and persuade the public of yeah. something. And I think that's a real problem, not just in the UK, but European politicians generally, they're not being sufficiently honest with their publics about all of the various trade-offs that are yeah. required. Um, by certain policies. I mean, like, immigration is such a good example. We've talked about this before, but the public wants competing things on immigration. You know, it wants lower immigration, but then it also doesn't want... Well, you ask them where they want lower immigration, you say, do you want it? Less healthcare workers? Do you want less Ukrainians? Do you want less Hong Kong nationals? And they say, no, no, I want all of those things. Um, and the basically, the, the politicians have to be more confident in making the argument and trying to convince the public that actually like you have to have trade-offs here like if you want low immigration you have to lose one of these things um and i think this is another reason by the way why i like macron so much because i think he is basically the only european politician who is willing to be honest with the electorate about that there are trade-offs involved and that i mean there was i'm not i was just going to talk like a whole list of all the various trade-offs but 
it's it's more just about having the willingness to argue with the public. Yeah. And, and you can't argue with the public the whole time. That's a losing strategy. But you have to be able to pick your battles with the public and say, like, no, like, public opinion is wrong on this issue. Yeah. It needs to change. Like, I, you know, the stats bear this out. And I think kind of tangential to that um, and using Macron as an example, Labour also, on, on the issue of Gaza, the conflict in Gaza, for example, um, that Labour have very much been kind of looking at what, the Biden ad administration has been doing and then kind of following on from that. I mean, Biden uh, kind of announced this this ban on visas to Israeli settlers who were involved in like violence in the West Bank. And then a few days later, Labour started calling for that. And then the UK government actually kind of did it, followed that policy. And I think you saw with Macron, he was like the first European, I think he was the first European leader, maybe the first Western leader to call for a ceasefire. Um, and now you've got I mean, the UK and US definitely aren't calling for a ceasefire now, but they're moving closer towards that and being more critical of the Israeli government. Um, and I think that thing with Starmer is that he, he doesn't lead public debate at all. He, he's very much like a, a kind of follower, I think. Yeah. Um, I think the defense of them here would be that when you're in opposition, you don't have sufficient airtime to make true. those yeah, arguments. You can only really respond to what the... the topic of the day is, I suppose. Yeah, But I, I guess the, the takeaway here is that when campaign time really kicks off, I think if he's going to be a successful leader, we'd like to see him making the argument on certain issues, yeah. um, even if it goes slightly against public opinion mm. or like the opinion of the, the electorate that the Labour is aiming for. Yeah. And incidentally, I, I think on when campaign time does come around, I think whatever happens with Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak's going to suffer a lot more in that campaign period than, he, than Starmer does because the little glimpses we've had of Sunak when he's responding to questions from journalists or the public... He, he doesn't deal with it very well. He's quite defensive. Yeah, he usually ends up with like a little snippy I remember comment. me and Ben arguing about this about yeah. two years ago yeah. when Ben was like, soon as a great media performer and he looked great when he was Chancellor because yeah. he was doing lots of like nice interviews about like, oh, isn't your EBITDA helps out scheme so lovely? And he'd be yeah. like, yes, it is. But now the journalists are attacking him for all his various decisions. Uh, he, just, mm. just, he doesn't come across particularly well when he's defending his record. Um, I think another thing, this, this leads on to the second question, which is about being too boring. Uh, or not sufficiently imaginative. I think your point about uh, Starmer sort of mimicking the Biden administration is instructive here, because I think that's really true. I think all of Starmer's most interesting headline-grabbing policies, maybe there are a couple uh, worth mentioning otherwise, but are derivative of the Biden administration. Mm. So the obvious one here is the Green New Deal. And when Starmer's, I mean, although it's worth saying that obviously Starmer has pledged to spend less yeah. on green investment in the first two years, after the Tories attacked him uh, on his like fiscal plans. But broadly speaking, when, when Starmer's big policy thing is the Green New Deal, um, and the precise contours of this, I don't think are entirely clear. It basically involves using uh, the sort of like, using the green transition as not an excuse, but like a means to reshore a whole load of manufacturing jobs, like recreate the yeah. British like industrial base. Um, and I think this is really interesting because it's, it sounds great. And one of the great things about it from Starmer's perspective is that you don't have to make the argument to people. I mean, just people love that idea. Mm. It's a very popular idea. But it's something that, at least to my mind, and I might be wrong about this, the Biden administration can do and we just can't do. Um, Biden administration can do it for a whole load of reasons. I mean, one, just America has a bigger industrial base in the first place. Two, it involves a whole load of really, really expensive subsidies, which America can afford largely because like, the dollar is the world's reserve currency, so they can borrow a lot of money. Um, and three, because it's not like it's not universalizable. And what I mean by that is that 
we can't just have everyone doing green new deals because yeah. there's only going to be so much demand for basically like green industry. It, you can't, you can't, we all rehouse, rehome the, sh you can't all reshore, onshore the same jobs. Yeah. Uh, you can't onshore one job multiple times. Like the Chinese have taken all your jobs. You can't just like take them all back and then double them up across like yeah. various countries. And my point here is that from, well, when it comes to Starmer, A, I don't think it's particularly imaginative and B, I'm not sure it actually works. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Anything to no, that. no. Um, so I, do you think there's any other sense in which they've been insufficiently like imaginative, maybe a um, bit boring? I, I don't know. There's part of me that just thinks when you've had, I understand that the, the kind of nervousness about building the pole lead that they've built and not wanting to lose that. But I do think when you've had a sustained lead of such a, you know, such a big size that you do have room to, to start kind of, setting the um you know framing the conversation that, that you want to have rather than just responding to things or kind of being pretty bold about things but just recently you know he was uh pray you know did, did that little thing about praising margaret thatcher in I, it wasn't quite as simple as that but i can't remember the exact quote um and but i just think we're journalists so yeah. we're just <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're he i think they're going so far in trying to like steal conservative voters that they're kind of forgetting about the fact that they have this big lead and that actually gives them some room to maneuver and they don't need to keep like trying to appeal to this whatever focus group they have that is made up of the few people who might have still not made up their minds so i think ultimately we basically agree in that our instinct is that it, so far it looks like you might have been a little bit too conservative mm -hmm. in both respects but i guess a lot depends on how he like how him and labor behave when they have more airtime yeah when we get closer to the actual election. Yeah. And it's at least possible that this is just necessitated by the fact that they just don't have much airtime. Um, and so it's quite hard for them to be more radical or to like make the argument to the public. So I guess it's a sort of, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. But all in all, nonetheless, a good year for Labour. Yeah, I mean, any anything we've said, you know, someone can just show us the, uh, the polling graph and like, you know, that is a fair point. But yeah, um, yeah we'll see how that, how that goes through to next year as well. Um, so I think we should do very quickly Lib Dems, because I don't think there's that much to say about the Lib Dems. Yeah. Um, done pretty well in by-elections. Yeah. Performed actually really quite well at the local elections, which, yeah. was in, which were in May. Yeah. Um, I think the big caveat here for the Lib Dems, though, is that the by-elections do suggest that um, tactical voting has, has been very, very big recently yeah. between Labour and Lib Dem voters. And I think if that translates to a general election, I don't know how well the Lib Dems mm. would do. I think, yeah, I, I don't think they're going to massively surge at the next election, but they, I don't think any of them will be disappointed by how the year's gone. Because, um, I mean, part of why the Tories are struggling so much is because they're losing kind of both ends, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, know what, I don't know what in the mind of Ed Davey a good 2024 election result would look like. Is it yeah, doubling do the I. number of seats, tripling, like plus five? I, I don't know, I don't know what it's going to be. I also think it's probably like, this is a bit unfair on Ed Davey because I actually really like Ed mm. Davey. Um, he gave an amazing interview in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago we talked about in the office yeah. and talked about his personal life, which is just like uh, earth-shatteringly tragic. Mm. Um, but he, I don't think he has the sort of like personality to cut through the noise and perform like a sort of Nick Clegg style yeah. resurgence of the Lib Dems. And I feel like when Labour's polling is so far ahead, 
all the sort of like opposition related media attention just does get directed to Labour. And that yeah. leaves very little space for the Lib Dems to, to make their case. Um, and unless they have someone with a sort of like, I was going to say like the charisma of Nick Clegg, but I'm not sure that's true anymore. But like, unless they have some Nick Clegg-esque yeah. to cut through, then I, I don't know, don't know how they succeed electorally. Um, uh, the next one on the list, and uh, the last one is going to be reform. Um, I think reform is a, it's a weird one. I think what I sort of wanted to mention it because the polling currently suggests it's on about 10%. Yeah. But they never seem to show up in by-elections. No, not to the point where it would really make a difference to the result from what I've seen, at least. Yeah, I think it's one of those where it's... this is The, the reason that reform have impact is just because those polling numbers alone are enough to scare the Tories into pivoting right further yeah. and further on issues like immigration. Um, and I guess the the thing that will... I mean, it's possible that reform will become electoral force in their own right in the next election under their current leadership, Richard Tice. But I guess the more interesting question is a sort of like, will there be a Nigel Farage-style mm. return? Um, and I think... Well, I don't really know why I include them on the list now, but I think that's just an open question that yeah, we can't really answer. I think they're definitely relevant to where the Tories are, are at at the moment. But... Um, like you said, it just doesn't bear out in the actual, actual elections. No, although it's come close in the last couple of months. Mm. So there was, you know, the by-elections at the very beginning of this year, reform polling on like 5%, but you'd get, turn, you know, one, basically less than 1% yeah. at the actual by-elections. But more recently, they're polling sort of 12% or 10%. Um, and they sometimes get sort of vote shares between like 5 and 8% mm. by-elections, which is still significant, especially when you're in such bad spots at Tories are. Yeah. Um, I think talk about the SNP. Of course, well. that was the big one. big one. Sorry, yeah, I missed that. The SNP. Let's talk about the yeah. SNP. Um, <laughs> a very big year. Um, go not, for it. Not necessarily a good way. So we obviously started out the year. Nicola Sturgeon was in power. Everything kind of seemed normal, sort of. Um, then she did this shock resignation in February and got replaced by uh, replaced with Hamza Youssef in in March. And I think, well, not since. Hamza Yusuf came in. Actually, that leadership election really exposed the divisions within the party that Nicola Sturgeon had managed to kind of paper, well, yeah, paper over, I suppose, and kind of she she the unity under Nicola Sturgeon was remarkably impressive. I think compared it makes to Nicola Sturgeon now. an even more impressive pop, uh, yeah. politician in retrospect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, but the SNP since then have have really struggled for a few reasons. Obviously, the the police investigation. Uh, you know, in which Nicola Sturgeon and her husband got arrested. Um, that was very bad for the party. But also um, the the kind of split on social issues that came up in the leadership election, especially over the um, gender recognition reform. Um, but it also just exposed a wider split in the party that it had kind of become this progressive force, but actually had these more socially conservative elements to it. There's been at least one or two defections, I think, um, and polling-wise, they've really started to sink. I mean, you know, they kind of completely dominated um, the Scottish uh, or general elections in Scotland um, in the last few years, but or the last few elections. But it seems like that's not going to play out the next come the next election. Um, and that's been really good news for Labour, obviously, because yeah, it means this news. resurgence of Scottish Labour that no one really had been expecting, I think. Um, and that just makes like, Keir Starmer's job a whole lot easier if they have seats in Scotland that they can pick up. Yeah, I genuinely think that this is probably the most significant development yeah. this year. I think that it's because it's a structural change. It's not sort of contingent on electoral circumstance. Mm. The fact that even like a year or two ago, 
it was just a sort of given that Labour no longer won in Scotland and that they could expect to pick up at most a handful of seats. Yeah. And that just made the electoral arithmetic so much more difficult for them for so many years. And not least because when they started polling quite well, the Tories could always rely back on this, like, uh, this basically sort of um, threat that you, if you vote Labour, you'll end up with a Labour yeah. SNP coalition and that will in turn end up with a referendum and possibly the breakup of the yeah. union. And that was a really effective electoral tactic, especially for lots of moderate would-be Labour voters. Mm. I think we had that advert in 2010 or 2015 where it's Ed Miliband in oh, Alex Salmon's yeah. pocket. Yeah. Um, and I think that was really, really effective for the Tories and it's a massive structural advantage. I think, by the way, that's one of the reasons that David Cameron could, well, did win or not full out majority, but why he won so well uh, in like 2010 and 2015, mm. um, despite the fact that the Tories at that point were not really a broad church in terms of appeal. They were quite a sort of like uh, directly Lib Dem vibes. You know, they didn't like, they didn't have as much, I think Boris Johnson was a more classic sort of winning Tory politician in that yeah. he had a working class appeal as well. When he's talking about higher wages and all that sort of thing. Whereas David Cameron was more directly target, like focused on, let's just to say the upper class or like the middle and upper class. Yeah. Um, he didn't really have that like sort of like cross-class appeal that I think someone like Thatcher or someone like Johnson probably did have, um, but was still able to win. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the, um, yeah, I think that's been a massive change. I think the polling is interesting though, because Hamza Yusuf is quite unpopular. And conversely, Anna Sawa, who's the Labour, Scots, Lieber, Scottish Labour, Labour, yeah, leader <laughs> of Scottish Labour, yes. <laughs> is quite popular. Mm -hmm. Um, but it does seem like feel like there's a flaw to the the SNP vote. Like yeah. it doesn't matter how bad it, they do, they really fall below twenty five percent in any polls. I guess because you do have those people who are pro independence, and you know they're not going to vote even if they think Labour might be better to govern the country than the Conservatives. They don't want to give their vote to party that isn't pro independence. I think um, it'd be interesting to see how that. Sh I, I, I assume actually that's quite a solid mm. flaw. But I think there's a chance that like, as the camp, as the election nears and the question of independence is sort of off the table for the time being, yeah. I think one of the reasons it felt so possible was more to do with Brexit and Boris Johnson's like deep unpopularity yeah. and basically all of the devolved regions. And I think now those two things are sort of like in the rear view mirror, there is a sense in which Scottish independence or Indie Ref 2 just feels a lot less likely. I think basically as the election nears and people start to at least acknowledge that a second referendum is not happening anytime soon. Those voters might soften up even further yeah. and might go towards there. But I think we have to wait till the election yeah. happens. Um, do you want to talk about Northern Ireland briefly as well? I don't know how long we've been going. Okay, quickly. Okay. Actually, because we've got a little cut to do. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking about devolved administrations. Northern Ireland has also uh, had a pretty, well, it's had a big year, but kind of uh, for the opposite region, reason in that there's not been a, a devolved government in Northern Ireland for nearly two years now. So the entirety of this year and since I think February last year. Um, and that is a thing that's still going on. Um, the DUP are continuing to boycott the political institutions in Northern Ireland in protest of the uh, post-Brexit trading agreements. There was movement through the year where we thought they, there might be movement to kind of bring them back into government in Northern Ireland with the Windsor framework, but that didn't convince them. And then more recently, there's been talk about a kind of slow walk back by the DUP. Um, but I think just this week, they've said, they're not going to come back before Christmas or before the new year. So it's going to go into next year and then we'll see what happens. But the UK government having delayed calling a fresh Northern Ireland election time and time again, um, have now resorted to like just offering a big financial package to Northern Ireland. And even that hasn't worked yet. Maybe if they offer more money, who knows? Um, but yeah, I think Northern Ireland's had a pretty tough time because 
while there's been no devolved government, you've got civil servants effectively running the the country. Um, they can't make it's a Belgium situation. Yeah, yeah, and they can't they can't make the big decisions that ministers could make. Um, they're kind of low on money, and uh, public services are kind of deteriorating because of it. Um, and yeah, I think going into next year, the question of if when the DUP walk back to kind of government in Northern Ireland is is the kind of big one. Yeah. It doesn't get much attention in, in England. Um, and I think that's probably partly why the DUP are so frustrated because, you know, they're loyal to the United Kingdom yeah. but don't really get much attention by the kind of London, England media. I, I think, think DUP internal politics have also been sort of like distorted by yes. the Brexit experience yeah, when, when they became, they had that veto power yeah. over government and that. I think that did sort of contort it slightly. Um, yeah, I think that it's, it's a really unremarked upon story. And I do think there are structural reasons to to basically think that at some point Northern Ireland could feasibly leave the union. And you've got the rise of Sinn Féin on both sides of the border. Mm. You've also just got the fact that like Brexit just does create, a, a, I mean, people deny it, but it does create like a sort of weird... It's not that they're outside the union, but there is a division. Yeah. And, and that is sort of like politically uncomfortable. Um, and whether or not that is like politically sustainable in the long term, especially like given the, the fact that the, the, the sort of like the discord within Northern Irish politics, mm. I think it's a bit of an open question. But I, yeah. Yeah. I think the DUP, part of this whole boycott is them coming to the realisation that they, they are or might well be becoming a less and less relevant political force because yeah. the Northern Ireland Assembly election last year was the first time ever that a nationalist party had come first yeah. you know they didn't get a majority but they came first um and that was a kind of a big shock to the dup i think well not a big shock but kind of a big big wound you know for them um, uh, yeah and i think part of this is that you know obviously the dup basically they've been slightly beset by infighting and they, they're sort of losing their place as the primary force for union for yeah. northern irish unionism and that makes it very difficult for basically any any sort of Northern Irish unionist because, like, who do you vote for? Yeah. You have, like, other unionist parties, but are you going to sort of... I know it's proportional representation, but are you going to sort of split your vote? Is it going to be sort of less effective from a unionist mm. perspective to vote for someone like the TUV or, like, one of the other um, unionist parties? And I think that's really difficult because then it, it strains the notion of losers' consent during those elections because unionists feel like they weren't really given a fair opportunity to sort of express their unionism because their side of the political aisle was so divided. Mm. Um, and that means that when like nationalists, well, not win, but like perform well, there's a sort of resentment amongst unionists because they're like, well, this is not actually a reflection of political sentiment in Northern Ireland. It's a function of the fact that the unionist side of the political aisle is beset by sort of infighting and um, disunity. Uh, yeah, and so I think that does make Northern Irish politics like extra difficult. Mm. Um, yeah, I think we're, we're happy. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, this segment of the last bit of the podcast. This has been a long podcast, so we'll do this very, very quickly. We are doing the World Leader Leaderboard, which is, well, is it our favourite bit? It's probably... I think so, yeah. It's definitely Jack's favourite bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, but this, for those of you who don't know, this is when we basically look at our World Leader Leaderboard, which has sort of like heads of state from most of the big countries and a couple of other people. Um, and we say who's had a good or a bad week since we last did the podcast, basically. Um, Rory, are you happy to go or do you want me to start? I'll start with my person going down, I think. Okay. Um, so I'm going to move Donald Trump down. So he, he's in the good side. He's going down to the kind of the middle of the board. 
Um, it's maybe unfair because he's definitely still the Republican favourite or the favourite to be the Republican nominee in 2024. But there was some recent polling, I think it was from New Hampshire, which is one of the earliest primary states or primary or caucus states, um, where Trump was still in the lead but declined by quite a margin. And Nikki Haley, the um, former governor of South Carolina, I think she jumped up second place to fairly close second place. And I think... I think she got something like 20 points compared to September, yeah, which is quite significant. which is remarkable. And even if she doesn't win in New Hampshire, that kind of momentum in those early states is what you need to become, yeah. maybe not the nominee, but the kind of the main challenger. And I think whoever does become that main challenger to Trump, um, really they're probably just going to hold on as long as they can on the basis that he might have to, you know, yeah. for legal reasons, he might I don't know, drop out or be imprisoned or whatever. I don't think he'll drop out himself he might be forced out i don't know exactly how but that second place person is really going to be in an important position so i think um, i'm moving down for that reason no i agree i think the fact that the sort of like the the main opposition candidate is not a diehard fervent pro-trump yes. guy yeah uh it's pretty it's well it's not terrible news for trump he's still the favorite but it's not as good as you'd like it to be all yeah. right who's your next one uh, do you want to put your person down? Oh, I should. Actually, yeah, yeah, I should do. I should do down. So I'll go. My down is Benjamin Netanyahu, um, and he is going down because I think it, you have seen a conspicuous drop in Western support for Israel in let's just say like the past week or so. I mean, the most obvious example here are recent comments made by Biden when he warned Netanyahu that he's losing the support of the international community, and I think in the last week both. Um, Jake Sullivan and what's the other guy called? Anthony Blinken mm. uh, have been to the US. And I don't know if we've got that much on their public comments, uh, but privately they've been allegedly telling Netanyahu that he needs to wind it down. Yeah, um, He hasn't at all. I mean, we had a report by Haaretz out today saying that basically senior Israeli officials think war with Lebanon now is inevitable, uh, which is good. Um, but I think that the fact that the international patience and support, even amongst Israel's staunchest allies, is waning, yeah. is pretty bad news for Netanyahu. I don't think, you know, I really don't think we've ever seen Israel this diplomatically isolated. There was a Ben Wallace, the former UK defence secretary, he did this quite it's remarkable thing in the Telegraph. He described it as like Netanyahu's killing rage or something. Yeah. And he was really, really like opposed to what Israel is doing. And I mean, he he's not defence secretary, but like that's quite a statement from someone who just recently was we had also had a, a joint op-ed by the german and british yes, foreign ministers yeah. which is also pretty much unprecedented i mean it's not like they hang out that much yeah and saying that they uh i think basically calling for restraint and a ceasefire yeah um by the way another case where i think you're right macron was ahead of the curve on this one um and um he's been calling for a ceasefire sort of he's, he's brought it back and yeah. ditched it but it cut for basically since the the late october um so yeah I, that's why benjamin Netanyahu is going down for me so who's who's going up for you? Um, well, I was, I was going to put George Maloney up um, because she hosted this kind of right-wing conference, lots of people there. But actually, I might put Macron up because he, you know, people, other leaders kind of coming around to his calls for a ceasefire. I think that's that's pretty good for him. Yeah, I think yeah. You, I, let's go for it. Yeah, I, 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 I love putting Macron up. Yeah. I mean, it's not like he's going to the tops of the board. He's just going to the middle. But I think, I think that is fair to say... Uh, He's had a, he's having a difficult time domestically, but internationally, he, his call for a ceasefire definitely was ahead of the curve, um, and he's being I think he's being vindicated on it. Yeah, the the other reason I think Macron's been sort of mildly vindicated is he got a lot of stick when he suggested an international peacekeeping force go mm. into Gaza, 
um, and get rid of Hamas and then maybe sort of take temporary control of the, the strip. But that does not look like a ridiculous idea anymore. I mean, the main other idea on the table is that the Palestinian Authority uh, runs Gaza. But in recent comments, Netanyahu basically said that's not going to happen. Yeah. And there's very, very little reason to think it could happen, given basically the attitudes of your median Gazan yeah. towards the Palestinian Authority. Um, and I think the Americans are seeing that they're getting increasingly desperate about like a sort of what happens next. Yeah. They keep on telling Netanyahu, like, you have to come up with a plan. He keeps on just going like, no. Um, and so I think what looked like a sort of wacky idea at the time could have possibly been that the best of a set of bad options. Yeah. Um, all right. So who is, That's is that what is done? You need to put your oh, person need, up. Yeah, now, I think. <laughs> um, my person going up. And again, this is no reflection of personal politics is Vladimir Putin. He's going right to the top. He's going up for two reasons. He's going up because of what's happened to Ukraine recently. Uh, and, and just the, I think as well as the disruption to aid, it's also the fact that we've seen them what's like, much like the re-emergence of partisanship in Ukrainian politics. Um, there was a sort of very public feud between Zeluzhny and Zelensky. And then more recently, uh, the mayor of Kiev, Vladimir Klitschko, I, I don't know what the exact wording was, but I think maybe he said, described Zelensky as like messianic in a critical way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was, I think it was actually more critical of that, but it was very, very explicitly critical of Zelensky, blaming him for sort of failing to properly prosecute the war. Um, and then on the other side of things, I think the, the Gaza war has been a massive diplomatic boon for Putin um, in two respects. I mean, one, it's done terrible damage to the, the, the America's sort of standing amongst the global South, who rightly or wrongly perceive America's like um, failure to speak up on human rights abuses in Gaza as sort of hypocrisy, given their stance in Ukraine. And also because it's pushed him close to people like Mohammed bin Salman and provide him with these sort of like new, more moderate, like not maybe not allies, but like the fact that he's seen hanging out with people like MBS just means that he no longer looks like the pariah leader that he once did. Yeah. Um, and so I think all in all, it's it's going pretty well for him. I also think there is to think that oil prices will be structurally higher and the recent chaos in the Red Sea might actually help that. That might push up oil yeah. prices. So I think that is everything. Yeah. We covered a lot. That's it for the year, I suppose. The whole year. That yeah. Is, yeah, exactly. So uh, see you over, if you feel like it, see you over on TLDR Global for our, I think, probably final podcast of the year. Yeah, I think so. On Thursday. Otherwise, uh, have a lovely Christmas, have a lovely New Year, and we will see you in 2024. Sorry, I'm sure I'm to give a little.